0: On your screen, you're going to see an image of a man. And my question for you this morning is, do you know who this man is? He's the focus of a very popular uh, ad commercial, and he happens to be, in case you don't know, the most interesting man in the world. Now, you didn't know what he looked like, did you? You were kind of expecting to see Larry Gregory's picture up there, weren't you? Well, the most interesting man in the world ad campaign features obviously a bearded, debonair 70-year-old man in a montage of daring exploits from his younger days. And in the uh, commercial series, he performs these crazy and amazing feats. He frees an angry bear from a painful bear trap. He makes an impossible billiards uh, trick shots. He surfs the killer wave. And the voiceovers for the commercial are both outrageous and humorous such as his need to give his own father the talk. Experiencing an awkward moment just to know how it feels, his small talk changing foreign policies, and being an expert at even knowing how to parallel park a locomotive. Today we come upon the story of a man that Jesus says is the greatest man born of woman. He's referring to John the Baptist. And so instead of a made-up story of greatness and falsity, I'd like for us this morning to look at why John gets that designation. Why John, the greatest of all born of woman? Why not Abraham? He deserves a few votes. Why not Moses? he was a savior of his people. And so as we continue our storyline through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has uh, worked very hard to portray Jesus as the unique king of kings. He has done this through Jesus' genealogy, showing that he is both son of David and son of Abraham. He's done it through the story of Jesus' miraculous virginal conception. He's done it in the worship of the wise men. In the murderous intention of King Herod, and the miraculous deliverance and protection of the baby. And now this morning, Matthew will continue to develop that theme by showing the herald, the announcer of Christ's public ministry. So as we consider the greatness that Jesus says that John had, what can we learn and how can we apply the story of a beheaded Baptist preacher to how we go to work tomorrow, to how we live with our family. Well, I think there's some good things for us this morning. And I ask for you to join me in prayer. That God's Spirit will give me power to say what I need to say in this passage. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together. God, none of us is as good as we think we are. Uh, We've all got our own baggage, we've all got our own issues. And so Lord, I pray that as we have the chance to come and hear your word, that you help us to hear it clearly. That you help our hearts to be receptive to this word from you. That we acknowledge this book not merely as a book written by man, but a book that was most ultimately written by you. So Lord, help us to see in these pages the things that are good for our instruction and our encouragement that we may walk by them In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the story begins in verses 1 through 6 of Matthew chapter 3 with John's sudden appearance and his spirited preaching. Look at verses 1 through 6 with me. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, "'Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand.'" For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Chapter 3, verse 1, begins with the word now. It's a transition word. And as is now in those days, John the Baptist came. Uh, A better word for that is that John the Baptist appeared. Came, you kind of see it coming. Appeared means that he just bust on the scene. He he came with... uh, Great power and great fervency. And so he created a huge stir. And there's several things that we can notice about him in these first six verses that we looked at. He came with a peculiar message. Did you see what he said? Some of you would like this. He's got a one sentence sermon Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He said, Guys, listen, especially you Jewish types, you have heard about the kingdom of God. Well, I am here to tell you today, it's right around the corner. You'd better get ready for it. Well, you can imagine when he is referring to a theme like the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven coming, created quite a stir. Created quite a stir. As a matter of fact, I love the way verse 5 puts it. In the New American Standard, it says, Then Jerusalem was going out to him. How do you pick up a city and take it to where John the Baptist was? And they almost use it to say, the city of Jerusalem went out to John. Oh, a whole bunch of people. John's preaching stirred up interest. Not only did he have a peculiar message, but he was a fulfillment of prophecy. We see that Matthew here refers to the prophecy by Isaiah, that he was a forerunner of the king. He is called a Herald, And one of the things that we know about a herald is that they prepare the way and proclaim in advance. They are the prep team for Jesus coming on the scene. And so specifically, the more dignified the person was you were going in advance of, the more preparation you would make. And so specifically, one of the things that he would do is he would go away, go along in advance, clearing the roadway. People traveled by foot, they traveled by chariot, they traveled by cart. And so he would remove the big rocks. Maybe there was a rock slide and he needed to clear the rocks out of the way. Maybe there were, imagine this, potholes. Maybe it rained, maybe they had massive snow and they had to salt the roads for Jesus to get where he was going to. And he would fill in the holes so that his travel would be expedient. And we see this Isaiah passage, specifically in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, which say this. You'll see it on the screen behind you. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up. Let every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain, the rugged terrain, a broad valley." then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Did you see the imagery there? Every valley brought up, every mountain brought down. You're to make a smooth way so that travel can happen quickly and easily. Just a few pages back, before Matthew, the last book of the Old Testament, is my favorite prophet, the Italian Malachi. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now if there's anything that we know about John, we had the chance to look at John a few weeks back at Christmas as we went through the uh, infancy stories about Jesus' birth in the Gospel of Luke and we know that John's Father was Zacharias, his mother was Elizabeth. And we know about Zacharias that Zacharias was a priest. Well, in a really fascinating turn of circumstances, John gives up the family business. He gives up his father's role as a priest, which was his by birth, to take a role that his heavenly father had for him, to be a prophet, a herald of the one king who was coming. And so the greatness that John has, we have to see very quickly, really doesn't have anything to do with John as a person. It has to do with the person for whom he heralds. And the greater the person you herald for, the greater you are. And because he heralds for this one who is Emmanuel, God with us, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the long-promised one who will usher in the kingdom, That means that John is the greatest, because he heralds for Christ the King. Not only did he have a peculiar message, and not only was he a fulfillment of prophecy, but he had a strange manner. This is made really clear in these first few verses. He preached in the wilderness. Now, um, Billy Graham didn't do that. Billy Graham preached in stadiums. He preached in cities. Why in the world, if you want to preach and you want people to hear it, would you preach where nobody is? You're preaching to cactuses, rocks, and sand. But he preached in the wilderness, and he was just a little bit odd. I have a feeling that some people would really struggle with John the Baptist filling the pulpit here, because he would not have a suit and tie on. He'd have camel fur and a leather uh, leather belt, and good Lord, let's just hope he brushed his teeth eating locusts and honey. He was just a little strange. He had a strange manner. But even the strangeness of his manner is tied back to the prophecy about him. You see, all throughout the scriptures, back again in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we hear this. Behold, I am going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse." God is promising in the last book of the Old Testament that he will send Elijah who had ministered previously. And so there was an expectation that before God's kingdom came, this fiery person like Elijah would show up. When we go to the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 17, where we are told about um, John the Baptist's conception. We are told that he will have a very special mission. And it says this, It is he, John, who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, many of your Old Testament uh, uh, believers thought that when when God said that Elijah is going to come, that there was going to be a physical resurrection of Elijah. That Elijah died, he'd be resuscitated, and he would minister again. But the Gospel of Luke makes very clear that this is one who is coming like Elijah, in his spirit and with his power. But they didn't quite get it. When you go to John's Gospel, the Gospel of John, John the Baptist is preaching all over the place. And they're going, wow, who is this guy? He is attracting oodles of people. And so they send out an inquisition committee to go see who he is. And they say, are you the Christ? You know what he says? Nope. Are you Elijah? Nope. Are you the prophet? Nope. Not any of these things. They expected Elijah. And he went in the spirit and power of Elijah. So the story begins with John's appearance and preaching. And it continues in verses 7 through 12 by describing a significant confrontation. Look at what God's word says. When he saw, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism. He said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, is that the most effective way to treat baptismal candidates? I'm not going to try that. That's what he says. He says in verse 8, Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance... And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Behold, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear the threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barns but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We already saw from the beginning part of this chapter that all of Jerusalem, the entire city went out to John. So evidently going to John was the cool thing to do. So not wanting to be caught unaware What do the religious leaders do? They join the caravan. If everybody else is going to John, if John's the fad, then we're going to go too. They didn't want to miss out. And what happens here in this confrontation, we get our first indication of animosity between John and the Pharisees and Sadducees. They show up and he starts hollering. Sounds like a tent meeting. He's ready to go. And this foreshadows the future problems that Jesus will have with the Jewish leaders. And the point is this. There was something wrong with how the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to John. There's something wrong. John is preaching and it's revival. People are coming out to him, confessing their sins and being baptized. And these people show up. And John has been at it long enough to have some discernment about those who are coming for baptism. Now we know from Jesus' own lips that the Jewish religious leaders, they were fancy. They were fancy and they wanted respect. And so they would dress really nice and they would pray long flowery prayers with language that thou dostest not use in regular conversation because they wanted to look really spiritual. It says that they love to have first place. And I think John looked at him. And he realized that their motive in coming had one right. So what's he do? Does he give them the gospel? No, he gives them law. Who warned you? Because he needs to shock them into realizing that they too, as religious leaders, have plenty to repent of. And that this ceremony of baptism would just be a religious bath with no spiritual meaning unless there was repentance in their heart and confession of their sins. So John the Baptist saw through whatever their motives were for coming. Do you wish that you had that kind of discernment when it came to people? I don't know if I really want to know people's hearts. There would probably be some really good things that would come from that. There'd be a fair share of trash that you've got to deal with too. And John had the clairvoyance, the clarity to see that their motives in coming were not right. They came to display their supreme holiness and piety. John said, that's not why you come. You come humbly, and you come confessing your sin. So John, in response, preaches his fire sermon. Three times in verses um, 7 through 12, he uses the word fire. He says, you know, who, who warned you to... To come, The axe is already laid to the tree. The trees will be burned up with fire. Uh, He's coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's going to burn up the chaff with fire. And the point in his fire sermon is that the kingdom is at hand. Salvation is coming. The light is dawning. But with that comes a terrible and sure judgment. And you need to know which side of the playing field you're on. So this is our introduction to John the Baptist, a one-sentence sermon that stirs up a lot of trouble. So what earned John the designation, the greatest? If John's greatness, as we've said, is tied to his connection to Christ, you know what's really great for us this morning? We can share in that greatness too, as we are connected to Christ. The problem is, our definition of greatness is 180 degrees from what God's definition of greatness is. Who's great? People who have power. People who can put people under their feet, make them do their bidding. People who have wealth. People who think highly of themselves and lowly of everybody else. That's what power is. That's what greatness is. Greatness is what the world says is great. And as we look at John the Baptist, we can see that for him, greatness was almost the complete opposite of what the world said is important. One of the problems with our churches today is that we too crave to be great with a worldly definition of greatness. Remember what Jesus said? The way to go up is to go down. The way to be great is to be a servant. And so as we look at this definition of greatness from God's perspective, what can we learn? How can God stir our hearts this morning to pursue it as God intended it? Well, I think there are two major categories and a couple sub-points related to John that I think speak to us today. And the first is uh, looking at things we can learn from John's manner. Things we can learn from John's manner. And the first thing is this. He was humble. John was humble about himself. He certainly was unconcerned about his appearance. You can tell something about somebody's vanity about how long they stand in front of a mirror to get ready for church. You can tell that there are people who who dress up not to reverence God, but to get the respect of people around them. Listen, if John the Baptist was here and that was your motivation for dressing up at church, you better watch out you better run. He's going to start yelling, "Brood of Vipers! Bad motives! Suffice it to say, John the Baptist was not concerned about being Jerusalem's next top model. While the Pharisees liked to dress for distinction... John the Baptist chose to be deliberately simple and to live a life away from the center of power in Jerusalem. Maybe that's why he was in the wilderness. As he knew that being around Jerusalem would be too great of a temptation. He was unconcerned about his status. We know later on that as Jesus comes to John to get baptized, you remember the first thing John says when he sees Jesus coming? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, when you are one of John the Baptist's disciples, and he says, that's the man, what are you going to do? John's disciples stopped being his disciples, and they became Jesus' disciples. What happens when your small group gets messed up? They start following someone else. You know what John said? I must decrease. He He must increase. He was humble about his status. So, you know what? A win for the kingdom is a win for me. And I don't care that my small group is bigger than his. Because the purpose of my small group is to point to him. And so, it's it's a virtue, it's a success to see my followers following him. And sometimes, when we think about humility, we tend to think that humble people are really weak, they have no backbone, they're humble you say that about John? He's humble. He's glad to say, listen, this guy that's coming after me, I'm not even fit to take his shoes off. I'm willing to decrease so that he can increase. I'm willing to be weird, eat weird food, wear weird clothes, live in a strange location. He was humble, but he was not timid or weak. Because number two, one of the things I love about his manner, he was humble. But he was scared of no man. Did you hear how he spoke to the religious elite? The Republicans and the Democrats show up at his, his church meeting. And you know, he, he doesn't say, well, I, you know, I need to get the fine china out for these guys. He says, you know what, they're sinners too. And they need to hear it. Because they've surrounded themselves with a bunch of people that aren't going to tell them the truth. And this may be my only chance. So here it goes. Wind her up, let her go. Scared of no one. He preaches to the point, you know what happens to John the Baptist? Kids, plug your ears. He gets his head chopped off. Is that a humble man? We tend to think that a humble man is going to find a cowardly way to preserve his own life. John is tremendously humble about himself. He is absolutely not scared of any man. Because Number three, he was completely serious about his commitment to God. How can a man be humble and yet not scared? God does that to a man. He was so serious about God that it impacted where he lived, what he said, what he ate, what he wore. Friends, shouldn't that be true of us? How many of you have moved in the last five years? Anybody? We've got a couple. All right, I'm going to pick on you. There's not a lot of you. But I'm going to pick on you and it applies to everybody else. Did you move where God wanted you to move? That's in the book of I Say So, chapter 60, verse 6, in case you were wondering. Some of you are going, God said where I should move? Man, I missed that. I better go back through my daily Bible reading time. No, the question is serious. Did you move where God wanted you to move? Young people, high schools, college students, you're making decisions about your future, what you're going to do for a living. Now, the skills and the abilities that you have, who gave them to you? You can use the Sunday school answer because it's right. God gave it to you. So let me just ask this question. Have you asked God what he wants you to do with your life? Because if you become a missionary when God wants you to be an engineer, guess what, you've sinned. That, that'll sink in here a little bit later. You have to do what God has called you to do. Because that's his plan for your life. Be a missionary engineer. Be a missionary at your business. He was so serious about his commitment to God that it affected everything. And for us, the truth is how you think of God should have an obvious impact on everything that you do. The clothes that you wear, the car that you drive, the way that you carry yourself... Temptation is to think of John as weak because he's humble. But his interaction with the Pharisees and the scribes proved that wrong. He was strong in the Lord. We need men and women with John the Baptist manner today. Humble about self, not scared of man, and serious about God. We also learn things from John's message We referred to it earlier about the kingdom of God being right around the corner. But let's take a little bit closer peek at this. And there are three things that I see. Kind of one big sentence. The first is uh, about John's message is that he preached a message of repentance. He preached a message of repentance. Repenting is more than merely saying you're sorry. Oh, sorry for the inconvenience. Or if you're driving and you cut somebody off, what do you do? Sorry for cutting you off. Jerk. Oh, a hand wave doesn't get you off of cutting me off. You know, we we just, we find ways to kind of say, sorry. That's not repentance. That's not repentance. You must admit, you must understand that sin isn't just against another person. Primarily, sin is an affront to God. We know the story of David, the man that the Bible says was a man after God's own heart who committed murder for the purpose of adultery. And when he was convicted of his sin, listen, there's a lot of people that David needed to repent to. He needed to repent to Bathsheba. He needed to repent to her husband. He needed to repent to the country that he led. But in Psalm 51 verse 4, what does he say? He says, God, against you and you alone I have sinned. You will never sin against God that doesn't have an effect on people. So David went right to the root and said, yes, I have sinned against people. But primarily my sin was against God. Now when we talk about repentance, repentance is a lot of things. And perhaps the best definition that I've heard of repentance is that repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change of mind that leads to a change of action. The idea of repentance is is the idea of an about face, where you're marching this way, and you turn around and you go this way. You uh, You are making a decision to walk in a different way. The issue is it's not just an intellectual decision. It's a decision where God has changed your heart, He has changed your mind, and the result is that it changes your action. And repentance, very clearly from this passage, requires confession. Now, I know there's some of you out there that keep track of big words that I use. So I'm going to give you a big one, but I'm going to define it. When the Bible uses the word confession, the Greek word for that, this is very important, is homo logeo. Homo meaning same, logeo meaning to say. So to confess, to homo logeo is to say the same thing. For us to repent, we have to confess our sins, which means we say the same thing that God says about our sins. Now let me ask you this. Do you think you have the same perspective on your sin that God does? No. You probably undervalue your sin 90%. It's just a trifle. It's just a thing. And confession is doing the best that you can to say what God has to say about your sin that it's despicable, that it's wicked, that you stand rightfully in God's judgment because you've not lived according to his way. And the thing that's great about repentance, you don't deal with your sin by explaining it away. You ever tried to do that? well, I just had a bad day. You're still mean. That's an excuse? Well, why don't you phone me the next time you have a bad day so I can stay out of your way? You don't deal with your sin by explaining it away. You deal with your sin by admitting it. You are free from your sin when you face it, not when you bury it. You disown your sin by owning it and saying, I know. I know. Things are not right and I've never been able to explain it. God's way deals with it. You repent by admitting it openly. And so that was what John's message was about. Repent! Because the kingdom is coming. And so if repentance is the way that we openly admit that we're sinners, how do we do that? Well, not only did he preach a message of repentance, his message of repentance naturally led to Baptism. It says people were coming out and confessing their sins and being baptized. And one of the things that's beautiful here is baptism was the immediate fruit of their response. They proved their repentance by being baptized. They publicly identified with John's message. You see, people could sit in the wilderness, you know, kind of cross their legs, you know, sit in their chair, listen to his message, and go home. And he said, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to respond. And the way that you responded was publicly identifying with this message through the act of baptism. Now, there's a lot of symbolism here. Baptism really, in essence, pictures two things it pictures purification, kind of like a bath, cleaning, washing away your sin. You know what else it it pictures? Drowning. Now, how do you think the Pharisees and Sadducees heard this? What do you mean I need to get baptized? I'm already clean. I'm a Pharisee. I got my my pedigree. What do you mean I need to die? You see, for the Jews, baptism was not a normal practice. Jewish people were not baptized. The only people that were baptized were Gentile converts. To become a Jew, not by ethnicity but by conversion, you had to be baptized. So if you're an outsider, baptism is for you because that's the only way you get inside with the Jews. So when John is telling Jewish people they need to be baptized, what's he calling them to admit? They are outside God's plan. They are outside God's people. Tremendously offensive. This is mine by inheritance. I am a Jew. Abraham is my father. John says, mm-mm, 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 Don't rely on your family heritage to assume that you're part of God's family. You see, they had to renounce their dependence on anything related to their self. Number one, they had to renounce their family heritage. And you heard what John said. He said, God is able from these stones to raise up his sons and daughters. By saying that, what did he do? John the Baptist united Israel with the entire pagan world and destroyed her specialness. He said, you have always said outsiders need to be baptized. Well, guess what? You're not in God's people by birth. So give up your reliance and your dependence upon your family heritage. Now there were two groups of people that came. There were Pharisees and there were Sadducees. And they didn't really like other. They were like Republicans and Democrats. And the Pharisees were very, um, very much impressed with their own personal righteousness. They had laws for everything. Like I, I'm walking around up here on Sunday morning. They had a rule for how far you could walk on the Sabbath. And it not constitute work. It was something like you could do like 600 steps. And after that, you were sinning. You have now worked on the Sabbath. So you, you, can't, you can't walk very far. So I have probably sinned, according to the Pharisees, already this morning. They had all of these fastidious, little, tiny, bitty laws that governed everything. And so they would be kind of proud. They'd have their pins for all of the laws that they kept. They were very pleased with their personal righteousness. And he said, you're not righteous at all. You have got to give up your own self-satisfactory self-righteousness for a righteousness that only Christ can give. Give up on your family heritage. Give up on your um, personal righteousness to the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were kind of the, uh, the rich Jewish leaders. They had been, by all measures, worldly successful. CEOs, bosses, you know, millionaires, and that was kind of how you became a Sadducee. You had to be, you were, you were um, liberal. The Pharisees were very conservative. The Sadducees were very liberal. But they also had all the money. And he said, hey, Sadducees, you're laughing because I, I called out the Pharisees for their dependence upon their personal righteousness. Well, guess what? You need to give up holding on to your worldly success. If you want to repent, if you want to be baptized, you've got to Repent. You've got to give up your family heritage, your personal righteousness, your worldly success. And the truth is in the church, we want to do things our way too. We want to rely on our family heritage. I'm a Christian not because I love Jesus, because my parents were born in this church. My parents helped build this church. That's why I'm a Christian. I haven't read my Bible for ten years, I haven't shared the gospel with anybody, I haven't even prayed a prayer except for meals, but I'm a Christian. Slow down there, buddy well, I'm a Christian because, you know, I read my Bible every day. Well, listen, I think the demons have it memorized from uh, table of index to the maps. It doesn't help them. Well, you know, obviously God's blessed my business, so he must really like me. Really? And here's what kicks me, kicks me in the teeth related to baptism. You see to repent. What did we say you have to do? You have to confess. You have to say the same thing that God says about your sin. God, I agree with you. I'm a sinner. I don't know that I would have used that word before, but I believe it. I am a sinner. I am saying the same thing. I am agreeing with you. I'm on the same team. And we've made it possible for people in our church to say the same thing about their sin, and yet when it comes to the act of baptism and identifying, they go, yeah, I say say the same thing about that, but I'm not going to say the same thing about this. How can you repent and then hold a private interpretation that you're not going to do what he says? It's almost like we've taken a well-loved hymn and we've changed the words. I have decided but I won't do that I have decided but I won't do that I have decided but I won't do that ain't getting wet ain't taking no bath and for John for the Bible Baptism was the way you publicly identified with Christ. It was a public display to tell the world that you are a repenter. And as a matter of fact, in the first century, that's what Christians were called repenters. Now, if that was our definition of church membership, how many repenters do we have? It's not 750. How many repenters do we have here this morning? And if the only time you ever repented was when you walked an aisle a long time ago, you haven't repented since then, I don't know that you quite got the message. I love what Pastor Larry prayed just a few minutes ago. God, look over to cover the multitude of sin that's even in this room this morning. We need to repent every day of our life. His message was one of repentance, but it was a repentance that led to and was proved by baptism. And friends, listen. This is not a denominational argument. I just want to ask you, what does the Bible teach about baptism? The Bible teaches that people who have repented will obey Him in baptism. And so if you have not been baptized, please hear my motivation with this. My job is to help you obey. So I know, by talking, hopefully in a Baptist church about baptism, That doesn't rate anybody's ire. Listen, I don't know what you all talk about when you go home after the sermon's over. Please hear my heart. The Bible's clear that we follow God by repenting and being baptized. Now, for some of you, that's not an issue. You've got that completely taken care of. What is there for you to learn to be among the greatest like John? Be a repenter. Be baptized. Did you see what else John said? He said, bear fruit in accordance with repentance. Be a fruit bearer. You don't just bear fruit once, but continually. And the point is this. What we say we believe orally needs to be lived morally. What you say you believe, out of your mouth, you need to walk that way. What you say orally, you need to live morally. And God will bear fruit in your life. And so, friend, whether you are at the beginning, starting line of the race and considering what it means to repent and confess your sins and to be baptized, or whether you passed those mile markers a long time ago, you need to think about how you're bearing fruit in your life. And the reason this message is so urgent, the reason John the Baptist was so effective at at what he did, was he was urgent in what he said. One-sentence sermon changed the world. And the truth is for all of us. Whether we realize it or not, we are on a pathway to the future. We are heading to a destiny where we will all meet God one day. Now, for those of us who have repented and been baptized and we're bearing fruit, we are intentionally, we are walking down the aisle, we are ready to meet Him at the end of the aisle. For others, my fear is that they're so consumed by their own life that the way they're going to run into God is like this. And they're going to bump into him and go, what now? What now? So how are you going to meet your king? Are you going to meet him with a smile on your face, with intentionality in your walk to meet him? Are you going to back into him and be surprised? The Bible holds out to us the promise that the greatness that was John's can be ours through our connection to Christ as well. Friends, how many of our marriages would be better if both spouses were active repenters and fruit bearers? It'd be wonderful. What would our church look like if we were constantly and continually repenting, obeying in baptism, bearing fruit in our lives? Bucky seatbelt, it'd be a roller coaster ride. It'd be fun. Woo woo! Church. Look what's happening. And so the question is this morning, what are you pursuing? Are you pursuing a greatness that can completely be defined by a worldly definition? Or are you pursuing a greatness that has God's smile upon it? Choose wisely, my friend. You only have one life to live. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning. That you will impress upon us our need to be humble. Because humble people repent. Convict us of our sin. It is different for everyone. Some of us struggle with lust and jealousy, some with uh, pride or anger. Convict us, make us repenters. Help us to follow you, not just in the short term in baptism, but in the long term with constant and consistent fruit bearing. And God, as we have this song of response where we can do our business with you, break our hearts, make us great, not for our sake, but for your great name. In Jesus' name we pray.